Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Across the Cemetery. My name is Josh. And my name's Emma. And this week Emma is going to be leading the episode, so I'll let her take it away. Okay, so have you ever wondered how doctors have become so familiar with the human body? Did you ever stop to think about how even in Victorian times, without x-rays and blood tests, the doctors were able to cure ailments? Albeit that some of the techniques used Albeit that some of the techniques that they used, such as arsenic for curing disease or the use of opium for toothache, will cause a few raised eyebrows now. But how did the doctors know so much in such a technological disadvantaged world compared to now? Body snatchers, that's how. So, do you know anything about body snatchers? Other than it's pretty much what it says on the tin, I guess. (laughs) As the term implies... Body snatching refers to the snatching of corpses from cemeteries and other burial sites. It was an eerie and unsavoury practice that ran rampant in the 19th century, especially in England. Body snatching has an an interesting history. So body snatchers, who are often referred to resurrection men, are not to be confused with grave robbers as the latter are concerned with the personal effects and the artefacts that are kept in the coffin rather than the body itself. A body snatcher is interested in the physical body of the deceased and it is worth risking fines, incarceration and the spookiness of a graveyard for their prize. Body snatching was the illicit removal of corpses from graves or morgues during the 18th and 19th century. Cadavers obtained were sold to medical schools for the use in the study of anatomy. Sickness was rampant during this time and the death rate was getting higher at the same time as modern medicine was trying to make significant discoveries. The two events essentially fed on one another, so the more illness that spread, the more medical knowledge was needed. The Murder Act of 1752 made it legal that you could only use the bodies of executed criminals in any sort of medical experiment or dissection. Using anything else was forbidden and it was considered highly immoral. Dissection was generally viewed as a fate worse than death, so while the the act gave doctors access to many more cadavers than was previously available, it was not enough. People began to wonder how might they supply cadavers to the medical world? Well, this was through illegal means. While it was highly distasteful, body snatching during the time was not really a felony, however, If the offender was caught, they were likely going to receive a fine and possible jail time rather than a heavy sentence or execution. The authorities typically turned a blind eye, mostly because they didn't have time nor the inclination to focus on on something so common. This reality, combined with the high demand for bodies, turned the art of body snatching into somewhat of an epidemic. Refrigeration in those days was almost non-existent, which made the procurement of fresh bodies especially challenging. Resurrectionists, body snatchers, had to work fast and it was usually in the pitch of the night. They often worked in teams and they had to locate dulled mouths of newly turned earth and gain access to the grave. Because of body snatching after a person's burial, most grieving families refused to put up gravestones for the first few months. This was out of fear that body snatchers would notice the new stones and they would target the site. 
Sometimes the body snatchers would send females in disguise to spy on funerals. They played a grieving relative or a heartbroken girlfriend so they could scout out the exact underground location of the coffin and report back exactly how best to retrieve the body. Grieving families would often employ somebody to watch over the premises or they would at least wait a few weeks until the body had begun to decompose and would no longer be useful for the body snatchers before they buried their loved one. The best score for a body snatcher was to locate a mass grave which was designated to the poor because their coffins were simply stacked together in one big hole and they were left mostly unsupervised and the bodies were unclaimed. So we're going to go to Edinburgh now. There was money to be made from dead bodies in Edinburgh, especially in the 1820s. The city had become a leading European centre for the study of medicine and the city's surgeons needed a constant supply of corpses to satisfy students' demands for, for medical dissections. Scottish law required that corpses used for medical research should only come from those who died in prison, suicide victims, foundlings or orphans. The surgeons paid well for the bodies. It was £10 in the winter when bodies could be kept in a decent state of preservation for weeks and £7 in the summer. The demand was so high and the money was so good that the city was plagued by body snatchers and they dug up press corpses regularly for Edinburgh's surgeons to dissect. The residents of Edinburgh began to take to the streets to protest against the increase in body snatching. To avoid corpses being stolen, bereaved families used several techniques in order to deter the thieves. Guards were hired to watch the graves, watchtowers were built in several cemeteries, and some families hired a large stone slab that could be placed over a grave for a short time. This was so that the body could begin to decay past the point of being useful for a surgeon. Other families used a mort safe. This was an iron cage that surrounded the coffin, but families who could not afford this themselves, they either delayed the burial or they took watch simply themselves. And aside from paying off people or simply guarding the grave until the body reached deep composition, people had to go to these great measures to avoid being victimised by body snatchers. So to make the resurrection jobs harder, the corpses would be placed in a patent coffin made of heavier metal like iron and with the right amount of money you could have a mausoleum or a cage player with locked metal, metal doors. For those who couldn't afford such protection, a mort safe like I've just mentioned which resembles an above ground cage. It was invented in 1816 and it was built around the buried coffin as a precaution. It was especially popular in Scotland. It was also known as a zombie cage and this invention is suggested that they were built in a way to keep the dead from escaping but this was in fact the reverse they were trying to prevent people getting the dead i have um i'll post a picture on our insta instagram social media they essentially look like the ones that people put on graves when they were scared of vampires i have posted about this in the past when we've done vampires and i will post about it again um but they weren't, they were to keep the bodies in, essentially. Because the grave robbers only had a certain amount of time to act before the body was not useful anymore. It sort of delayed them and they had to act quick, especially at night. They only had a certain amount of nightfall, there might have been guards, relatives might have came to protect their loved ones, taking shifts, you know, you never know. Anyway, 
More tapes would be up for several weeks until the body was fully rotting and then they could be conveniently reused. An example of an original Mort tape still sits in the Mariscal Museum in Aberdeen, Scotland. There were also offensive ways that you could protect your loved one's coffin. And when I say offensive, I mean you could harm the body snatcher. So there was a device known as a coffin torpedo. This could be set up and it would put a barrier between the cadaver and a body snatcher. These were also known as grave torpedoes, coffin guns or cemetery alarms. These explosive devices would sit on the lid of a buried coffin and they would fire lead balls at anybody who tried to dig it up. It was like a shotgun, but underground. Sometimes they were packed with gunpowder and they had the ability to instantly kill anybody that was stupid enough to mess with this grave. Other kinds of booby traps or protective snares were also placed, such as sharp objects or broken glass were attached to cemetery walls and placed strategically around the graves. So now let's talk about two famous grave robbers, well, body snatchers. William Burke and William Hare. Both Williams were from Northern Ireland and they moved to Scotland to work on the Union Canal. They Hare ran a boarding house in Edinburgh with Margaret Laird, Margaret Hare, his wife. Their business agreement began on a cold winter's evening in 1827. One of Hare's tenants, an elderly army pensioner by the name of Old Donald, died of natural causes while still owing £4 in rent. This is the equivalent of nearly £300 today and Hare and his wife were furious. To cover the man's outstanding debt, the pair weighed down his coffin with a tanning bark prior to his funeral and they took his body to the medical school at Edinburgh University where they were swiftly pointed in the direction of Professor Robert Knox who was a professor in anatomy at the university. Knox paid the duo £7 and 10 shillings for Donald's body. As they were leaving, one of Knox's assistants told them that Dr Knox would be more than happy to see them again when they had another body to dispose of. The two Williams were encouraged by the ease of this transaction. They had made money and they basically done no work. So, the pair struck again in early 1828 when another tenant named Joseph became ill. Too impatient to see if Joseph would actually die from his Ill afflictions, Margaret was worried that having a potentially infectious guest in the house might be bad for business. Burke and Hare took it upon themselves to help him along. The two men quickly decided to hasten Joseph's end and they were going to profit from his corpse. They plied the man with whiskey and when he was suitably inebriated, Burke lay on his upper torso while Hare suffocated him. This became their favourite method of execution as it left the body unmarked and undamaged for the students who were later to dissect the cadavers. In the aftermath of their killing spree, this practice became known as the Burking. The two now lacked any further ill tenants, so the pair decided to entice victims to the lodging house and they prayed on Edinburgh's poorest communities who were less likely to be missed or recognised. They then took it in their own hands to kill these people. In total, Burke and Hare are said to have murdered at least 16 people for, from between seven to 10 pounds a piece, although the real total is likely to be a lot higher. The pair's next three victims were an English travelling salesman, an old woman, and a salt seller by the name of Abigail Simpson. 
The Englishman fell ill with jaundice while lodging at the O'Hare's house. Margaret again was worried about what his illness might do to the business. So Burke and Hare murdered him and sold his body to Knox. Standard. Abigail Simpson became the first victim to be laid to her death. She was a pensioner from a nearby village. She regularly came into Edinburgh to sell salt. Margaret invited her into her house. She plied her with drink and then Burke and Hare murdered her and sold her corpse. An old woman whose name is unknown suffered a similar fate. This time, however, the murderers waited for her to fall into a drunken sleep before they wrapped her head in a mattress cover. She was dead by morning. The bodies were sold to Knox for £10 apiece. When Knox saw Simpson's body, he was impressed by its freshness, but he didn't think to ask why that was. Or maybe he was too scared of the answer. I could go on a few more about their victims, but we could be here for quite some time, so I will move on to their final victims and ultimately their undoing. Burke and Hare's final victim was Margaret Doherty. She was a middle-aged Irish woman who was led into Burke's home by the promise of a drink. While Burke's wife went to fetch her, Burke paid for the two lodgers called Anne and James Gray to go stay at Jane, a Hare's place, so that Doherty could be murdered away from prying eyes. Her body was hidden in a pile of straw at the end of the Gray's bed. The following day, the Gray's returned. Alice tried to go up to her room to fetch her stockings, but Burke stopped her. Suspicious, the Greys waited until they were alone in the house. They searched the bedroom and they discovered Doherty's body. Horrified at their discovery, they went off to tell the police. While they were away, Burke and Hare removed the body and they took it to Knox. When the police arrived, they found the dead bodies, blood-stained clothes and took Burke and his wife into custody. The body of Doherty was identified by James Gray at Knox's dissecting rooms, which led to the arrest of Hare and his wife. The killing spree had finally come to an end. 16 people had been murdered. Burke and Hare had earned about 150 for the bodies they sold to Knox, which is just over £10,000 in today's money. While the authorities had the body of Margaret Doherty, the medical evidence wasn't strong enough to prove that she had been murdered, and as for the other victims, their bodies had publicly been disposed of by Robert Knox. This was the perfect cover-up. Hare was offered immunity from prosecution if he testified against Burke. Margaret Hare would also be spared as spouses could not testify against one another. Hare readily agreed and he confessed to all the murders to save his own skin. Burke and Helen McDougall, who was Burke's wife, was tried before a packed Edinburgh courtroom on Christmas Eve 1828. Burke was convicted of the murder of Doherty, while McDougall was released as the charge against her could not be proven. Burke was sentenced, not just to death, but to public dissection afterwards. William Burke was hanged on the morning of the 28th of January 1829, before a crowd of 25,000 people. His body was dissected by Knox's great rival, Alexander Munro, on the 1st of February 1829. To this day, Burke's skeleton is on display at the Edinburgh Medical School and there is a macabre spectacle of a book bound in his skin. This can be seen in the Surgeon's Hall Museum. Despite never thinking to inquire where Burke and Hare's remarkably fresh, 
corpses came from. Experts believe that Dr Knox must have known that the corpses he was receiving had met a murderous end, but he callously had turned a blind eye. Medical historian Ruth Richardson says, If Knox was as brilliant as anonymous as he says he was, he should have noticed that these bodies had been killed. For this reason, once the murders were discovered, and that Dr Knox went unpunished without so much as making an apology, this called outrage. Demonstrations against him in Edinburgh turned to rioting. Robert Knox was exonerated of blame, and he was never tried for his involvement in the murders, but his reputation in Edinburgh was severely damaged. Shortly after the Birkenhair case, the Royal College of Surgeons presumed him to resign of the role that he had in the museum. Knox moved to London after the death of his wife and he failed to get a university teaching post again. Therefore, he worked as an anonymous at the Free Cancer Hospital. He, pub- he published several books, some were controversial, and he died in Hackney, London in 1862. Helen McDougall and Margaret Hare left Edinburgh and they were never heard of again. William Hare was released from prison in 1829 and assisted by the police, he fled Edinburgh in disguise to the town of Dumfries. He was subsequently dumped by the side of the road and told to make his own way to England. His fate is unknown. The two men were not body snatchers in the conventional sense. Instead of robbing graves, they resorted to serial murder. Although perceived as body snatchers, Burke and Hare's corpses had never really been buried. Indeed, the victims had never left the guest house, but they were never physically dug up or dug down. They were never buried and they were never unburied, but they were all suffocated, strangled or asphyxiated. The revelation of their crimes in 1826 led to huge public outcry and it caused Parliament to make some changes. The Anatomy Act of 1832 gave surgeons and their students legal access to bodies from workhouses, hospitals and prisons that were unclaimed 48 hours after death. It also made it possible for a person to donate a next of kin's body for medical study. So I found online when looking about Burke and Hare that their tale is often used as a way for adults to scare their children into behaving. So they'll be like, Oh, don't don't be naughty, Burke and Hare are going to dig up your body. But also, there is a rhyme that often accompanies games like hopscotch and skipping. Hi Loki. Up the close and down the stair, in the house with Burke and Hare. Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief. Knox is the one who buys the beef. Burke and Hare fell down the stair with a body in a box, going to see Dr Knox. So I'm going to move on to our final group of body snatchers now and we're going to go to London instead of Edinburgh. So these were sort of came about because of Burn and Herc, but I'll let you know more about that obviously if you listen on. So London also struggled to gain access to bodies for medical science. The legal reforms made it so that only about 55 bodies a year were available for medical schools. This is where the London Burkers came to play. Who were the London Burkers, do you ask? They were a body-snatching gang made up of John Bishop, Thomas Williams and James May. No, not the Top Gear James May. 
Unlike Birkin here, rather than allowing nature to take its course, the three chose to hurry things along. Because the activities were so similar to the notorious Birkin here, they were known as the Birka, the London Birkers, but they were they did also go by the Benful Green Gang. This group of body snatchers would dig up and sell fresh cadavers to the surgeons and students at St Bartholomew's Hospital, St Thomas's Hospital and King's College. Bishop in confession admitted to stealing between 500 and 1,000 bodies in the manor over a 12 period. This shocking body count severely surpasses Jack the Ripper, which was allegedly between 5 and 6 victims. It also surpasses Burke and Hare, who allegedly killed 16 people during their body snatching days. So, essentially, the student has become the master. The London Burkers turned to killing people and then selling their bodies. They would first drug their victims using opium mixed into rum to disguise the taste. They then drowned them head first into a well in John Bishop's garden. The murder left the bodies with no marks or real evidence that there was a murder. And press at the time reported that the kill count of the Burkers was to be over 60. The turning point for the Burkers came with the murder of 14-year-old Italian boy Carlo Ferrier. In 1831, when the medical students examined Ferrier's body, they suspected that he did not die of natural causes and that his body did not look like it had been buried. So, he didn't have muddy fingers and the body was really fresh. In November 1831, Bishop, Williams and May were arrested and tried for the murder of Ferrier. Although, like I said before, he did confess to stealing between a fa- 500 and 1,000 bodies, Bishop did not confess to murdering any of them. However, he still was found guilty. So Bishops and Williams were executed outside Newgate Jail on the 5th of December 1831. This was reportedly in front of a crowd of 30,000 people. Then they were cut down and they were dispatched to medical establishments for dissection. How ironic. So they met the fate the same as their idols, would you say? Birkin here. So now I'm going to move on to a little bit of a review just because when I was googling body snatchers and grave robbers this book came up quite a lot and I've read it before I even started this podcast with Josh and it's very interesting and a lot of the research sort of linked to it. So the book was called The Impossible Girl and it's by Lydia Kang. It's a historical fiction book. Um, You can buy it on Amazon or I think you can listen to it on Audible. I read it on my Kindle. I thought we'd do something a little bit different, but also my friend said that we should start doing book reviews. So this sort of made me think, hmm, I'll, I'll do a little book review. So here is the synopsis. This summary is from goodreads.com. So Manhattan, 1850. Born out of wedlock to a wealthy socialite and a nameless immigrant, Cora Lee can mingle with the rich just as easily as she can slip unnoticed into the slums and graveyards of the city. As the only female resurrectionist in New York, she's carved out a niece procuring bodies afflicted with the strangest of anomalies. 
Scientists will pay extortionate sums for such specimens, dissecting and displaying them for the eager public. Cora's speciality is not only profitable, but it also means to keep a finger off the pulse of those searching for her. She's the girl that was born with two hearts. She is a legend among grave robbers. She is sought after because she is an endangered prize. A series of murders unfold and they begin to get closer and closer to Clara. She can no longer trust those that she holds dear. This includes a young medical student that she has fallen for because someone has no intention of waiting for Cora to die of a natural death. So this book had a sort of mix about science fiction, romance, history. Um, it was sort of a horror story as well. It, I thought like when I was reading it, I got the like the most like perfect like autumny, Halloweeny feel. So I would definitely recommend it for this time of year. However, one thing about it, some parts were a bit confusing, because I'm not gonna dive too into it because I don't want to spoil it. But there's a part where a character plays two characters in the book. That makes no sense. But there's a part where one character in the book has an alter ego. It's not like De- Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but I did find it a bit confusing. But I don't know if it's because I read it too quickly because I wanted to see what happened to Cora. I wanted to know what the outcome of her grave robbing and everything was. It did keep you on your toes, though. You did want to keep reading it. I think I read it in like a day. I um, I just couldn't put it down. I love Cora in it. I love how she is about like girl power and she's an independent woman, gets her own gets her own money, um, protects herself because of her illness. I was hooked from the first chapter and I did like the Victorian times in the book. The only thing that I would say is that maybe some of it didn't add up like like she was born with two hearts but she didn't really suffer from an illness. And I don't think if you were born with two hearts that you would be okay to do such a challenging job as grave robbing. I also like that she was a female grave robber. I, I thought that was interesting. I thought it was. I thought it was interesting, like the way they were describing how they were robbing the graves and how she was looking for certain people who had certain illnesses. She never actually killed anyone, though, which is good to know. This book. It has a lovely cover if you look online as well, but I unfortunately read it on my Kindle, so it was in black and white for me. But I would give it a 4 out of 5, and it would be perfect for this time of year, like I said before. So yeah, thank you for listening, and we hope you had enjoyed our story. It's a bit of a shorter one this week because it's my birthday this week, on Friday when you'll be listening to this. So we've been a bit up the wall. <laughs> um. Well, thank you for listening. You can find us on Instagram at AX, no, Across the Cemetery. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at AX the Cemetery. TikTok, AX the Cemetery. You can also email us at acrossthecemetery at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Even if you recommend any books that you want us to read or review, or whether you have any grave robin stories. I hope you don't have any grave robin stories, but you might. Um, and also if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to us on that would be very beneficial and it's just nice to hear what you think of us and whether we could improve 
we're always up for some discussion which is lovely i had a comment from a lovely lady that i always speak to on instagram she said about the sound which i was very grateful for and we have turned it up again this week because she said that it sounded better the week before week before and yeah i like hearing what you have to say and also it would be a lovely birthday treat if you listened to us and gave us a little review so thank you for listening and we hope you have a lovely weekend bye